The Bible is a great story. Don't ruin it. I could still hear my preaching professor, Haddon Robinson, saying these words to us. The Bible's a great story. Don't ruin it. I got to be honest, we preachers are sometimes guilty of doing just that. Uh, we take what God has communicated in beautiful language and beautiful story, and we turn it into three points in a poem, and, uh, and we ruin what God, the creativity that God has endeavored to communicate his word and himself to us with. So we come to the minor prophets in the series we're engaging in Mount Hope uh, for the next several weeks. The book we come to today is called the book of Hosea, and Hosea is a great story, and I'm going to try not to ruin it this morning for you. What I'd like to do with Hosea is a little bit different. I want to modernize the ancient story for you. I want to try and get us to get a feeling for the feelings that Hosea was trying to bring across. The story I'm going to tell you is more of a modern version of what Hosea did, but I believe faithful to the message that God is giving us. It's a story about a man named Johnny. Well, Johnny is, uh, if you went through his Facebook posts, that's what you'd see his friends called him. But it's not the name his parents gave him. His parents gave him the name Jonathan. Uh, they had had a very real, each of them, and profound experience with God in their life. They had each been saved uh, radically in their life, and, and when they began to grow in Christ, they learned about a man in Christian history called Jonathan Edwards, probably or quite possibly one of the greatest preachers in American history. And when they learned about Jonathan Edwards and the great awakening that occurred in this country, they thought, if God ever graces us with a son, we're going to name him Jonathan. And that's just what they did. God had given them a son, and they gave him the name Jonathan. From the very beginning of his life, they wanted Jonathan to be an instrument of God. So they had him dedicated in a church, and when they did, they invited all their friends and family, those that knew God and especially those that didn't, so that they might come in and hear about this God who loves them. From there, Johnny grew up like uh, most kids do. He played sports and video games. He went to football games on Friday nights and hung out with his friends on the weekends. Sunday, he was in church. At first, because his parents brought him and that's where they wanted him. But eventually, because that's where he wanted to be. He started to realize it was the place he felt most safe, most himself, most close to God. Something happened when the preacher opened up the Bible. Johnny felt that he was speaking right to him. And so it wasn't that surprising to Johnny that when he was in middle school, he was in a church service one day, and he heard the voice of God speak to him. He heard it like, like you know the sun is out on a bright sunny day, like you know water is wet, like you know ice is cold. He knew it was the voice of God. It said to him that Johnny was called to be a preacher, calling him to serve God in ministry. He kept it to himself for a while, but eventually he couldn't keep it to himself any longer, and he told his parents. 
His parents were overjoyed. Up until that point, not wanting to put any pressure on him, they hadn't really told Johnny why they had given them the name Jonathan. But in that moment, they finally told him that they had named him after this great American preacher who had uh, started a great awakening across the country with a sermon of his called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Johnny thought that was a strange name for a sermon, but he was glad to know the heritage that his parents had already been trusting with him. After finishing high school, Jonathan went on to college. He went to Bible college, and his plan was to come out in four years with two things. One, a Bible degree, and two, a wife. Both seemed to be mandatory for a preacher. Four years later, he had the degree, but not the wife. He met a lot of nice young ladies in college, many that felt that they were called to ministry who were looking for a husband. But every time he would go to the ward in prayer, he never felt confirmation about any of them. So he left college and set out into ministry. Unlike many of his classmates, Johnny didn't have to wait long before a church called him to be their pastor. It was a small congregation in a small New England town that had asked them to come and serve as their pastor. Johnny knew that New England was Edwards' country, and so he took this as a sign from God that this is where God was calling him to go. Small church of about 50 people, maybe they hit 75 on Easter. But he went and he loved that church. He preached, gave his heart to that church, and they loved him. And they cared for their pastor. But he still felt like something was missing from his life. There didn't seem to be a lot of marital prospects in the small town that he was living in. So eventually, uh, Johnny sheepishly created an eHarmony profile. It wasn't the way he expected to find a wife, but he thought God is big enough that he can even work through the Internet. So he'd put his profile up and he would see these other profiles that were up there and he'd look through them and he'd see a lot of them, but none of them seemed to be the right one. Eventually, though, he saw one and he knew in that moment that this was the woman he was going to marry. He had known that feeling only once before in his life, and that's when God called him to ministry. He knew it like you know the sun's out on a sunny day, like you know water is wet and ice is cold. He knew that God was telling him to marry this woman that he hadn't even met yet. Well, he, of course, wanted to find out as much as he could about her, so he went on Facebook and typed her name in to see if he could find anything out, and he was surprised to find out that... uh, Most of her posts and photos were public. There wasn't much substantive information that he was able to learn, but he did see a lot of photos of her with other guys and a lot of comments in her timeline from guys. But, hey, she was single. And, uh, you know, he believed and knew that, well, once they got married, this would all change. I I mean, her timeline would be filled with... uh, pictures of them. Her timeline would be filled with their time together serving in ministry, their time together uh, serving the poor, handing out meals, 
going on missions trips, that eventually that this woman, no matter what she was like before, would certainly change her ways once they got married because this is the woman that God was telling him to marry. Thought about this timeline that should God be gracious enough to them would be filled with pictures of their kids. If Facebook was still around, maybe even pictures of their grandkids as they rock away their golden years talking about the ministry that God had them in and trying to encourage on a future generation of people serving God. Johnny had all this in his head before he even met the girl. But he knew this was the one God was calling him to marry. So they went out on a date. And Jonathan was right. He, uh, they went out on a date and things progressed quickly from there. It wasn't long before they got married. It wasn't long after that that this woman, her name was Sarah, was pregnant. Johnny knew, well, this, this would also help in changing their life. Things were going along just the way that Jonathan had anticipated. I mean, their marriage wasn't perfect, and Sarah's Facebook timeline still got some comments from some old guy friends. But he wasn't too concerned, because he knew once the baby was born, well, that's going to change everything. That baby will capture her attention and capture their attention. They had a baby. It was a baby boy. And actually, not long after that, she was pregnant again. They had a baby girl. And then after that, a third child was born, another boy. Their house was busy, noisy. But Sarah didn't quite take to motherhood the way that Jonathan would have hoped. In fact, many times he would come home from a long day at work and find the kids still in their pajamas. The house a mess, dinner nowhere in sight. When he very cautiously asked what she'd been doing all day, she mumbled something over her shoulder and then looked back, went back to looking at the computer screen and scrolling through her Facebook feed. He tried to get her to get some help, that they would go to counseling together, that they would try and get their marriage to the place that he knew that it could be, but the one time she went, all she did is spent the whole time staring at her phone and saying that things are fine. It was hard. It's not the way it was supposed to be. But he loved Sarah. And he knew this was the woman that God had chosen for him. So he kept on going, even though he felt like he was a single parent on most days. And then one day, he was a single parent. He got a call one afternoon. It was his neighbor. She said uh, Sarah had asked if she could drop the kids off for a little while while she ran to the store, but that was hours ago, and I've been trying to call her, and it keeps going to voicemail, and, and I'm just getting concerned. And in that moment, uh, Johnny left the office right away and started driving home and started frantically making phone calls, and just as she said, every time it would go to voicemail, he started texting and driving and trying to get through, but no response. He couldn't get her at all. He couldn't reach her. There was no response at all. She was gone. He thought about calling the police, but deep in his heart, he knew there wasn't any foul play, at least not the kind the police can help with. Her heart had wandered off many times during their marriage, and now it took her body too. 
He got the kids fed, bathed, read them stories, sang Jesus loves me to them, and said their prayers. He assured them that mommy had just gone out and would be back soon, though he's pretty sure they were not any more convinced than he was of his words. After closing the door to the youngest child's bedroom, he said a prayer to himself. He said, God, you gave her to me. Help me to know what to do. God, I don't know what to do next. As he opened his eyes, he saw the computer screen staring at him, and he knew what he needed to do. She was still logged in. Not only that, she was still posting. Went on to her account and her latest Facebook post. Just had two words on it. Said, free again. It was a picture of her and another guy across town. In that moment, Jonathan, part of him, was so angry that he wanted to run over there to that guy, run across town and give him a piece of his mind. He wanted to run over there and and tell Sarah, who do you think you are? All that I've done for you. He was so angry with her for rejecting everything he'd done, everything he'd, he'd provided. He wanted to run over there. And then another side of him just wanted to run over and plead for her to come home. Another side of him that loved her, wanted her just, just, just to go over and beg her to come back. What? We, we can fix this. We can change this. But in the end, he decided that if she wanted to come home, she knew the way. And anything he did would probably only make things worse. So he let her be. Over the next several weeks and months, he didn't hear from her at all. Some nights after the kids went to bed, often with tears in their eyes, asking for mom, he'd go and check the latest posts. Things apparently didn't last too long with the first guy. Seemed like every time he checked, there was a different picture of a different guy she was living with. It was like a dagger in his heart to see it. The love of his life. The mother of his children. He held out hope that one day she would return, but he knew in his heart she wouldn't. One night he went on to check the posts, and she saw a picture of her, and she didn't look healthy. She had lost a lot of weight. She was obviously not taking care of herself. She looked sick. Her post said, Joe lost his job. Yes, again. We're being evicted. Haven't eaten in a while. If anyone has a room we can crash in, let us know. He knew the place where they were living. He drove over there, parked his car. Couldn't bear to face her, so he waited to make sure that she was gone. Knocked on the door. Joe opened the door and said, who are you? He said, I'm the husband of the woman you're living with. You could see that in that moment, Joe began to tense his hands and make a fist. And Jonathan said, no, no, no. I'm not here looking for a fight. He said, I know things are tight. Take this. Buy some clothes. Buy some food for her. Pay your rent. Handed him an envelope. 
Joe broke the gaze just long enough to look down at the envelope and see that it was filled with $100 bills. Had to be thousands of dollars in that envelope. And a crooked smile broke across Joe's face. And he just simply said, sure. Sure, I'll take care of her. And he shut the door. That night after the kids were in bed, Jonathan checked her Facebook posts and read, Good news! Turns out Joe's aunt died and left some money for him as an inheritance. Bad for her, good for us. Joe is such a great guy, I knew he'd take care of me. The post was accompanied by a picture of Sarah and Joe in an embrace and her kissing him on the cheek and a bunch of heart emojis. Jonathan closed the computer. A little more time went by, and out of the blue, one morning in his prayer time, Jonathan heard the voice of God. He heard the voice of God like you hear it, and you know it's God. Like you know the sun's out on a sunny day, like you know water is wet, like you know ice is cold. It was the voice of God. And the voice of God said, go and show your love to your wife again, even though she is loved by another. Jonathan knew it was the voice of God, and he opened up the computer to see if he could find out where she was. But when he did, he found out that she wasn't living with Joe anymore. In fact, her posts had stopped a few weeks back. Looked at the last post that was there, and it was obviously hastily written. Seemed scared. Said something to the effect of... uh, Joe lost a card game to another man, and to settle his debt, he gave me to him. There wasn't an address, but from the background of the picture, Jonathan could make out the neighborhood. So compelled by his love for Sarah and the word of God in his life, he went and started knocking on doors. Finally, he came to a door answered by a rough guy. Sarah? There's no Sarah here. But through the crack in the door, Jonathan could see her sitting on the corner of the bed. And uh, he said, that's her. The guy said, oh, her. I've called her a lot of things, but Sarah wasn't one of them. No, you can't have her. She belongs to me. I won her in a card game. I won her. She belongs to me. In that moment, Jonathan didn't know what to do. But he just said to the man, he said, "Uh, I'll pay off her debt. How much did he owe you? In that moment, he could see the wheels in the man's head turning. He knew whatever number came out of his mouth was going to be far more than he ever lost in a card game. He said, uh, $1,500. He said, here's, and uh, Jonathan said, here's 17. Now leave her alone. She's coming with me. Man looked back at Sarah and said, go. You belong to him now. Jonathan cringed. 
as this man talked about the love of his life, the mother of his children, like she was some kind of piece of property. The door closed behind them, and Sarah didn't smile. She didn't say a word. She braced herself for the barrage of words and holier-than-thou criticisms that were bound to come. But he simply said, Come. Come home and live with me. You must not be with any man, other man, any longer. That was all. She never heard him speak of her past life or all she had done again. Jonathan returned back to his work at the church. He was there one afternoon when he was there alone. The building was quiet. And in that moment, he allowed his mind to drift back a little bit to college and beginning of ministry. Thought this wasn't how it was supposed to be. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. This wasn't the way he pictured it. He always thought he would have a wife that would be with him answering phones maybe at the church or talking to the ladies that stopped by. He thought they'd take a break in the middle of the day and have lunch and prayer and stop by and visit someone maybe at the hospital or their home, that they would always be doing ministry together. But that never happened. There he sat at his desk alone in a quiet building. But he knew he wasn't alone. He knew that God was with him. God had spoke to him. So as the realities of life hit him, Jonathan hit his knees. And he wept. And he prayed. One word. Couldn't manage anything more, but it's really all that was needed. He just prayed one word. Why? 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 When his tears were exhausted and he felt weak, he sat in silence. In that moment, he heard the voice of the Lord. He heard it and he knew it was God. It was like the sun is shining on a clear day, like you know water is wet, like you know ice is cold, like you know that you know that you know it's the voice of God. God told him, Jonathan, go and preach. Go and preach. How can I go and preach, God? I'm the laughing stock of the town. I'm the preacher who can't take care of his own wife. What do I have to say? What message do I have to give? I am broken. I have loved one who has rejected me. And the Lord responded with three words. And those three words answered all of Jonathan's questions. Those three words explained everything that had happened. Those three words gave him what he needed to go on. Because Jonathan had said, who am I? I have loved and been rejected. And God said, so have I. So have I. I, the Lord, have loved the people who have rejected me. I have loved them. I have purchased them back. Jonathan went, and we'll leave Jonathan's story at that point. 
and move from Jonathan to Hosea. The life of a prophet was a tough one. The truth is that sometimes their lives served as little more than signposts to other people to reveal a truth about God. And that's the case with a man called Hosea. A prophet of God whose name means Savior. This man, who though I modernized it, the facts really remain true, was told by God, go and marry a woman. And whether she was loose with her morals before marriage, a prostitute, there's some discussion about that. We don't know completely what she was like before marriage. What we know is that after marriage, she was not faithful to Hosea. Her name was Gomer. In fact, they had the three children they had, the last one was named No Kin of Mine. It was a message from God that his people were not acting like his people. But it was also a message for Hosea that maybe these three kids were his or maybe they weren't. God told Hosea to go marry Gomer knowing that she would not be faithful to him to serve as a message to us. The life and words of a prophet are meant to teach. They're meant to be an example to people. So what's the lesson here? Don't marry someone who's going to cheat on you, maybe. But that's not really the lesson. Israel was to look on the life of Hosea and find themselves in the story. We are to look on the life of Hosea and find ourselves in the story, too. We're represented in this story of Hosea and Gomer. You might say to yourself, well, I'm clearly Hosea. I'm that faithful person who loves others no matter what. That's just the kind of person I am. No, you're Gomer, and so am I. We are the unfaithful spouse. The Israelites are also Gomer in the story. Although the Israelites are God's chosen people, they turned from him and began to worship false gods. All their allegiance was given to these idols, and they had left their relationship with God for wild flings and one-night stands that had no true meaning, and you and I are no different. God has shown you and me great love in creating us, providing for us, and blessing us with all we have, and we have repaid him by breaking his law and spending our time, treasure, and talent on things that are far less important. God has given us life, and we have, in essence, cheated on him by investing our lives and serving and worshiping other things. The love Hosea shows Gomer displays the love God had for the Israelites and the love God has for you. When the people betrayed God, he was angry. But anger is not the only emotion God had for his people. For turning and giving their worship to other gods, he was also heartbroken. Sometimes you don't think of God like that, do you? There's other prophets that we'll look at in several weeks, and you'll see that God gets angry at sin. But Hosea, more clearly than perhaps any other prophet in the Bible, maybe any other book in the Bible, brings across the fact that God is also heartbroken and emotionally impacted by the sin of people. 
When Israel was a child, God says in Hosea 11.1, 1, I loved him. I taught them to walk and took them up into my arms. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, which is Hosea's favorite word for Israel, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Yes, God was angry, but he was also heartbroken because he was in love with these people. And just as Hosea lavished unconditional love upon Gomer, hoping that love would be returned, so God lavished unconditional love on his people only to watch them walk away time and time again. When the Israelites walked away from God, it broke his heart. When you and I walk away from God, it has the same effect. In all of this, God's love for his people never changed. In the midst of their adulterous actions, God still loved and fought for his people. No matter what you do or what you've done, God's love for you never changes. He still desires a relationship with you. Maybe you're here today and you're like the people to whom Hosea is speaking. You're someone who follows God, who knows Jesus. But in the way you are living, you have given your allegiance and worship to other things. Your best time and energy goes not to your relationship with God, but to other things. You believe in God. You say you follow Jesus, but to, but the focus and purpose of your life is focused elsewhere. Your time, your talent, your treasure are more spent worshiping the idols of money, sex, material things, entertainment, and education. They circumvent the place of God in our lives. These things aren't bad in themselves, but when they take the place of the ultimate things in our lives, they become idols, and we cheat on God. Today, we must face this question. Where in your life today are you more focused on the temporary earthly, unimportant things. And in doing so, is there any place that you're cheating on God? No matter how far you've strayed and how unfaithful you've been, God's love for you has not changed. God is saying to you today, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. Maybe you're here today and you don't follow God. The truth is, no matter what you believe or what you've done, God created you and he loves you like crazy. In a fit of rebelliousness, you have walked away from God and lived your life on your terms and you assume God forgot about you long ago. But the truth is, if you'll stop long enough to listen, you'll hear his voice saying, I love you. I've never stopped loving you. When we want to walk away from God, he lets us go. As in any healthy relationship, he does not control you or tell you what to do. He patiently waits for you to return back to him the love he freely gives to you. Jesus once told a story about a son who left his home and disgraced his father. 
The son took his inheritance while his father was still alive and wasted it on parties and relationships only to find his life in shambles. When he decided to return home, he expected to face his father's wrath. But to his great surprise, he experienced his father's great love. If you've been running your whole life from this relationship and assumed that God had turned his back on you, he has not. And if you will turn your life over to him, you will not experience God's anger, but you will be overwhelmed by his great mercy and love. Because today, God is saying to you, it's time to come home. It's time to come home and live with me. Wherever you are in that place, God wants from you not token appreciations that you would know about him. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Hosea 2.23 says, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. See, those were the other names of Hosea's kids. One was Jezreel, and that was just a place, location, where God's people had abandoned him. And so God told name your first kid Jezreel to remind them that they've abandoned me. The second name, the name meant no mercy. Name your second kid no mercy. Because they will know that uh, you turned from me and they're not going to receive any mercy. There was an anger there. The third one was not my people or no kin of mine. These aren't my children. But God turns back. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. This is the love of the God that we serve. That he calls you. No matter where you've been. No matter where you've gone. You may have attributed the things in your life to someone else. But God is the one who gave them to you. God is the one who's blessed you with every blessing and good gift you've ever received. He's waiting for you to turn back to him and to find his love there in that place. I want to take a moment to pray as we close out this message and then we're going to move on to communion. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And maybe in this moment you would say here that it's time today to come home. Maybe in this moment you've heard this word and this love story that God has shared with us and you've said, I need to respond to that love that God offers to me. If that's you, then he has not made it difficult. In fact, it's simple. Simple to turn back to him because he's been running after you all your life. And maybe you'd say these words that uh, put them in your own words as I say them. Maybe you'd say them in your own heart, in your own life. 
words to God like this, Dear Lord, I have gone my own way. I have lived my life for things that are lesser. I have lived my own life for myself and not for you. Lord, but today I want to come home. I want to come into your presence and accept the gift that you offer to me. I want to live for you, to love you. I want you to lead my life. So, Father, today I give my life over to you. And I ask that you would come and lead me, be my Lord. I ask that you would forgive me of my transgressions, my sins, all those things that I've done, all that worship that I've given to any other God or any other person or thing in this world. And that you, Lord, would enter into a relationship with me, that you would be my Lord, and that I would be yours, that you would have mercy upon me. And I ask this in Jesus' name.